0: Hello,
1: everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I am your host, Jacob Daniel. So today's episode is going to be a little bit different in terms of its format. I'm actually going to be, after the first 10 minutes or so of introduction here, going to be playing to you a segment from a live stream I did in the previous year on my other podcast, the Daniel 3 podcast, because it is a excerpt that I think goes well with what I want to communicate in today's episode. So today's episode is on property rights. And property rights are important in the conversation of libertarian anarchism. As I've talked about before, the flavor of anarchism that I more closely ascribe to would be anarcho-capitalism, which was the idea founded by Murray Rothbard, who was a student of Mises and the Austrian School of Economics. One of the most basic ideas of libertarian anarchism is the idea that you own yourself, and then as an extension of that self-ownership, you own your property and the things that you have either mixed your labor with and created or things that you have traded for voluntarily with other people. So in the way that science and Christianity are not incompatible, and rather there's actually, I think, the more proper way to view it would be that like, science is the process of uncovering the order of God's creation and the way that it's structured, and the way that it works, and the way that we interact with it. I think that economics is sort of a science of sorts, and it is the science of also discovering God's order, but I think it's rather than discovering God's order in a sense of the ordering of the physical makeup of the universe, or like the energy or thermodynamics of the universe, and laws of physics, and things like that, we're studying the science of human interaction and exchanges. And that is actually what the Austrian School of Economics likes to call itself. It's the study of human action. That's actually the title of one of Mises' very popular writings on the subject of economics. The idea is that all economics and all human activity can be boiled down to one simple, sort of like self-evident proclamation, which is that, well, humans act. Inevitably, if you strip everything down, people cannot do nothing. People will inevitably do something. And so when we observe the ways in which humans act, well, humans act by basically looking at the state that they are currently in, And then looking at the potential futures of different courses of actions that they could take, they then inevitably create a sort of value hierarchy in terms of evaluating which one of those potential actions is going to get them closer to where they want to be or to accomplish the end that they are seeking to accomplish. And so then when a human does act, They are acting upon that subjective value judgment and acting in at least a subjectively rational framework in which they believe that the action they take is going to benefit them along the lines of what that analysis was, whether they think it's going to increase their wealth, whether they think it's going to increase their well-being, or whether they think it's going to get them closer to some sort of goal or end that they are pursuing extend this out a little bit, the Austrian School of Economics would look at like a transaction between two people who are trading things and would say that, you know, those people have come to a mutual agreement that each of the other persons has something that the other wants and that it is in concordance with both of their subjective value hierarchies that this exchange Benefits the two of them. And so it's done freely. It's done without coercion, without people forcing them to do so. And it's done, you know, usually without a sense of remorse or a sense of dread. You know, there might be some lingering regrets like, oh, I wish I could have gotten this for free, maybe, or I wish I could have gotten a better deal. But at the end of the day, neither one of them is going to accuse the other one of forcing someone, the other, to do something that they didn't want to do. They decided that even though like, let's say I traded my cow for someone else's horse. You know, let's say that I had an abundance of cows and they had an abundance of horses, but we each had a scarcity of the other. Now, I might just really like my cows and it might just, you know, I might have a sort of like, ugh that was my cow. I hate to give it up, but I still am voluntarily giving it up because you know I really need the horse and my need for the horse outweighs my need and want to keep the cow that I've raised and invested my labor in so I am making that action because I believe that adding the horse to my fleet of animals is going to put me in a better position it's going to increase my well-being or my ability to accomplish certain things on my land or to travel or etc this gets into different theories of value. And, you know, if you have studied economics at all, you've probably heard of different, you know, there's there's sort of like the labor theory of value. There's like the intrinsic theory of value, the monetary theory of value, the power theory of value, lots of different ones. But the theory of value that the Austrian school would ascribe to is the subjective theory of value, which when you start from that analysis of human action, I think it sort of intuitively makes sense, which is that things don't just have value ascribed to them by some sort of like central planner or top down authority. And there's not even a universal agreed upon value upon goods or services because people have different subjective tastes. So, if for some people going out and spending $500 on a like new video game console, well, to them that Price tag is worth it. They think that console is worth that $500, and so they buy it. But others, you know, they look at that price point and go, "Eh, if it was $200, I, I might buy it, but it's not worth $500 to me. You know, that $500 is worth more to me than that video game console. So things might have price points that the seller is putting on them, but that doesn't mean that that's describing the value for everyone, that's describing the value to the seller, saying, well, I will only give this up for X amount of currency or goods or etc. There's a lot more to the Austrian school of economics, like the Austrian view of the business cycle and of fiat currency and other things like that. But we can definitely go more into those subjects as I do think they're important. But just for the purposes of today's episode, the foundation of Austrian economics being the subjective theory of value, which is then borne out in people who own themselves and own their property, is important. And the reason it relates to anarchism and the pursuit of trying to connect the biblical principles of authority and government and human relationships to the political theory of anarchism is that it is important for us to be able to define what our rights are and to be able to have a mode of evaluating human interactions. And property rights is, in my opinion, the best means for doing so when it comes to the areas of life that we would define as economic. And those are definitely important. You know, the the economy is something that, many use as a justification for the existence of the state. And there are many who believe that you need a state to control currency, to control prices, to ensure that people play by the rules, to act as a counterweight to big businesses and to corporations. You have people who believed in a mixed economy. You have people that go all the way to believing in centrally planned economies. And if we're going to seek some sort of consistency, from our political framework or our religious framework and apply it out, we need to first start with a foundation of what are rights and what does the Bible say about what our rights are and what is normative in terms of economic exchange and what is normative in terms of how we derive value and things like that. There is a need to first establish, I think, that The Bible does support the idea of property rights, and that property rights, while some people might think that, well, those aren't the only rights that exist, in a sense they sort of are, because all rights are described as property rights, and so you own your body, and so you have a right to have your body not be stolen by someone, not be controlled by other people, or not be harmed or killed— And then the things that you own should not be stolen from you or etc. I mean, for one, this obviously lines up with things like the Ten Commandments, do not murder, do not steal. Also underrated is do not covet, which to me, I always think that the do not covet commandment is often, there's not, it's sort of under-talked about in sort of like modern day Christianity, especially if we're talking about like politics and economics. And there's a lot of coveting going on, I think, in the political establishment today. And an example of that would be like the political left definitely coveting the rich and those who have gathered and collected a lot of resources. And and the left sort of covets that and says, well, you know, if we had that money, we would do these things with it. And the right can do that too. Or you know, sometimes they'll covet more like resources or land or things that are less material. But definitely the do not covet is important in terms of Coveting your neighbor's property or your neighbor's life or things about your neighbor can lead to becoming consumed by that and then violating the rights of that person. So coveting can lead to stealing or lead to murder or etc. So the idea that we need to be able to explore sort of the science of human interaction, you know, I think is important and I think is true. And we obviously want to do that from a biblically informed perspective. And so, I'm going to be doing a sort of series here where I try to go to the Bible and find the passages where the scripture is diving into sort of what the godly defined norms are when it comes to property rights, when it comes to value, when it comes to the science of human action, which I think as much as the Austrians have coined that term, you know, these ideas have existed throughout human society, including going back to God's word itself. Again, as Christians, we are called to live at peace with all as far as it depends upon us. And we're not to seek to be rulers over other people and we're to be servants rather than to be authoritarian strongmen who are trying to control people. And I think that anarcho-capitalism and anarchist view of politics and human interactions, which are guided by the idea of property rights being sort of absolutized in a certain sense, where everything boils down to don't hurt others and don't take their stuff. This is, in my opinion, the best way we can live out that biblical call. And I think the Bible even supports that. So, In this first episode, the excerpt I'm going to play for you is something that I did, again, on my other podcast, and I was inspired to sort of like talk about a passage that came up when I was reading through, actually, the Libertarian Christian Institute's book, Faith Seeking Freedom, and its section on property rights. So I think you'll enjoy it. I go into the passage, and I sort of talk a lot about how that passage shows a lot of insights into human interactions, into what our rights are, what we're owed, what is fair, and where value comes from, and how these things collaborate well with what the Austrians have discovered and pushed and what anarcho-capitalists have talked about and established in their writings and in their work. So I think you'll enjoy this. And again, this is only part one in this series, and there's more to come, and we can dive into God's word. And again, as always, it's the good word to all about salvation. And it's also the good word to how we can better live as though the kingdom of God is actually within us and that we can live that out in our lives today and be salt and light and promote peace because that's what we're called to do. So I hope you enjoy this segment and I will then chime in at the end as well. I actually wanted to start by reading an excerpt from, uh, and I've had these people on my show before or talked to them on their show. Uh, So this is uh, the book Faith Seeking Freedom. Uh, It was written, uh, published by the Libertarian Christian Institute. I have been on their show and had a conversation with Doug Stewart. And uh, I've had Carrie Baldwin on my show a couple of times now. So this is a great book. Uh, just for like, if you wanted to have a quick primer to give to Christian, you know, brother and sisters uh, to sort of, you know, go through uh, the basics of libertarian philosophy and economics and to connect that to the to the Bible. It's a great resource. It's only, I don't know, 120 pages. It, it's, it's not a, a thick read. It's a, it's a very good primer, very good um, introduction. Uh, to get people, you know, thinking about these things and to, and to learn more about, about about our ideas, so they have uh, early on here uh, a section which is kind of like, well, what is you know the basics of libertarian libertarianism and what is libertarianism, and um, so they get to a point where they're talking about property rights because they've already kind of gone through the non-aggression principle and all that, self ownership and and all that. So they get to property rights, and so one of the confusing things is that people will sometimes go to things in the New Testament and say that there are passages where Jesus or or the apostles are condemning capitalism or condemning the pursuit of wealth, condemning property rights, whether that's like in Acts when it talks about how all things were held in common, or, you know, there's like passage in, in Colossians. Uh, where it talks about God is the ultimate owner of everything. You know, we're also as humans, we are given stewardship over, over the earth by God. So although God is the owner of everything, um, our, his ownership, you know, acts out through us. So, and, and there's something, you know, th- this reminds me of the analogy and I got this from, uh, Stephen Rose, who is the uh, host of the anarcho Christian podcast. So, plugging a lot of my Christian libertarian brothers and sisters um, uh, for this episode, you know, and I, I, I I do need to pause here and just give, you know, I I don't derive all, I'm not like some, I didn't fabricate Christian libertarianism from, from my own, right. You know, this was a journey I went on with the help of others and I'm just trying to kind of in the same way that I'm not going to liken myself to Dave Smith in terms of like my reach and audience, but you know, it kind of reminds me of how Dave says. Well, I just go out there and and say the same things that Jeff Dice and Scott Horton and Tom Woods say, but to different audiences. And yeah, it's kind of what I'm trying to do. Is is I, I love the ideas that that Stephen puts out on the anarcho Christian podcast. I love the work of the Libertarian Christian Institute, and I'm just trying to, you know, if anything, just just be a microphone, be a megaphone to shout their ideas into you know more areas into more people and uh, if if and then they through me check out those two people to those two groups uh, you know all the better um, this is not for my own personal glory and I'm gonna give credit where credit's due. Anyway, well before I pick the book back up. So the reason I brought up the Anarcho-Christian podcast, Stephen Rose sort of explained that uh, the Bible describes two types of relationships, right? There are the horizontal relationships um, and and those are sort of like the uh, relationships between, you know, man to his fellow man. And then there are the vertical relationships, which are the relationships between man and God, both individually and collectively, the relationships between man and society and the creator. And so anarchy, you know, the way, way Stephen puts this, is that anarchy is basically the... Uh, Acknowledgement that if God is, you know, the sovereign ruler, that vertical relationship, what that speaks to is is then that in the horizontal relationships, no one can be a ruler to uh, another. And, you know, there there are many passages in the Bible that would back this up. My favorite is uh, Mark 10, 42, where Jesus specifically says, um, you know, that the Gentiles are loved to lord an ark. Over each other and brag about their status and their power, but it should not be that way among you and if anyone seeks to be the first or to be a leader, he must first be a servant and and so and you know I've, I've talked about that a lot on my show so uh yeah then you know because God is necessarily the sovereign because you know Christ is king, the relationship we have among each other as 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 men living here on earth is an anarchical relationship where no one uh, is is ruler over each other, um, and so in that same vein, even though God is the owner of everything, okay? Well, God um, that that is in a sense describing, I think, that sort of vertical relationship. But then, in terms of the the horizontal relationship, or then the uh, the the analysis of how the world works when it comes to um, how we interact with the world, that we certainly. Um, you know, have an ownership over things in a, in a certain sense. It might not be that kind of same metaphysical claim that God would have, but, but it's a, it's an economic claim, right? And and so I think the distinction between those two categories is important. There's, there's, you know, God is a, a, a metaphysical, a, a necessary, a spiritual, a deep, uh, deep rooted, uh, existential, (laughs) um, owner. Uh, because of you know being the creator and that which you know, I think brings essence to all things and to life itself. Um, but in an economic sense, uh, in a philosophical sense, we we also can claim ownership to ourselves, to our bodies, and to the things around us, to the products of our labor, and to the things that we freely trade for. Then, when you're dealing with passages like in Acts and stuff where people hold things in common, it's like well. I think the critiques there that we could go into would go into kind of like you know how you can have voluntary sharing of resources within a small community of of people. And this is sort of what we do in churches today. This is what you kind of do in your family. And uh, while certainly you can share things that you own, you have to own them first in order to share them. And if we completely eradicate the idea of ownership and try to start from a place of collective everyone collectively owns everything. Well, then we run into a lot of problems where the Austrian School of Economics would get into you know, economic the, the problem of economic calculation and, and price's law and and, and how, how society cannot be func- you know, cannot function in this way. Furthermore, the Bible needs to, you know, speak to itself and we have to read uh, passages as they relate to the rest of the Bible and have a proper sort of like hermeneutic a proper reading of scripture from um from start to finish, going more into what the, the book Faith is Seeking Freedom goes into. So I'll read, let's see. Uh, why are property rights so important to libertarians? Well, Christians believe that all humans are ultimately owned by God in Christ. Colossians 1, 15, 17. Humans, as image bearers of God, are given stewardship over themselves and their property. This stewardship is not only a responsibility we have to God, but it is a right that we have in relation to each other. So that's kind of like, there's a lot of what I just said, but in their own words, much more succinctly. Um, Human rights are foundational in a libertarian society due to their normativity. In the words of Frederick Bastiat, rights do not exist because men have made laws. On the contrary, it was the fact that rights existed beforehand that caused men to make laws in the first place. This is sort of like the idea that Uh, The rights are, you know, every man is created with rights endowed by the creator. Government isn't the creator of rights. The idea is that government would be the protector of rights. How do we identify or or articulate them? This has been the problem philosophers have faced for centuries, even back to ancient times. Property rights, however, are, are a useful way to clearly identify human rights. Christians may claim property rights... In their person and of their things, vis a vis Christ's teachings in Matthew 20 and Luke's reference in Acts 5 uh, 4. In fact, property rights are so useful that Murray Rothbard said they're axiomatic, that is, self evidently true. Christians agree that stating that this is a God given norm through creation, and which is why they are self evident, because property rights are evidenced by nature. Human beings, whether believers or not, may operate on the same rules, and we don't need to teach every individual a contrived political economic theory. Property rights are useful because everyone everyone recognizes them, regardless of their personal po- political proclivities. Even socialists believe in property rights. They simply believe the government has the right to, to a given property. So libertarians operate from a principle of property rights because they are universally understood and self-evident and Christians may operate from the same principle because it's supported by scripture so first of all you know I think that that was well said by by the writers at LCI so they brought up Matthew 20 and and so this was actually when I read the whole passage I thought just to read this whole passage and to talk about it a little bit would actually uh, be because there's so much here like this is like This is one of those passages that like, honestly, I could do two hours on. This is sort of a parable of sorts called the laborers and the vineyard. So this is Jesus speaking. So this is chapter 20, beginning in verse one. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give it to you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And on the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. I want to pause here and just highlight verse three again. He said, and when he, when he so he agreed in verse two, the initial laborers, they were going to get a Daenerys a day, and then he sent them in. And then when he the third hour, when he saw people standing idle, he said to go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give to you. I just want to make sure I really highlighted that that section. He didn't he didn't promise them a specific amount. He said, Whatever it is, right, I will, I will, I will give to you. There's no evidence that he forced these laborers to go in. They were standing idly. They probably wanted money. And so they agreed to just, okay, whatever's fair. You know, you'll just you'll, you'll pay us what, what you pay us. Better than doing nothing. All right. So uh, when evening came, picking up back in verse eight, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those who hired about the 11th hour came, and each of them received a denarius, da- which was why he promised the laborers at the beginning of the day. <laughs> so when the 11th hour came, they, those who came at the 11th hour, each of them received a denarius. Da- and when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, "These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat." But he, before I read this, I would just want to, you know, highlight again: no coercion has happened, no, no deceit, no fraud has happened here. You know, essentially, you know. In, in this parable that Jesus has constructed, the owner of the vineyard is trying to have his vineyard worked, and he, he is cl- clearly wealthy. He wants a certain amount of work done by the end of the day. And so as he's finding more people standing around who are not doing anything else, he's like, well, I might as well pay them to come in and help get more uh, more work done. And so then picking up in verse 13, you know, so obviously people are like, well, you know, what the heck? Like these people worked one hour and you're paying them the same amount that you're paying us who agreed to work at the beginning of the day. What he replies to them is, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did Did you not agree with me for one Daenerys? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. I am... You know, he says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. God, there's so much there. For one, I think this passage clearly demonstrates, like, especially that last part, which is kind of what LCI was bringing up. They, they said, especially, uh, you know, verse 15 of Matthew 20. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my, my generosity? So right, right there, like even without going any deeper, we have a clear demonstration of how that which you own, you can do whatever you want with, and that is essentially what property rights are. You know, when you own something, you have the right to use that resource as you see fit. You have a right to use that 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 which you have made, that which uh, belongs to you, can use for 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 any purpose, uh, including your money. You can spend your money however you see fit even, and, and you can do so in a generous mindset. But so part of the, the lesson here, of course, is that, you know, it's okay to be generous and, and to, you know, there's, there's some spiritual implications here. Uh, lessons about, you know, even those who are last, you know, inherit the kingdom of God and, and all that, you know, cause that's how it starts out for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house. So I don't want to take away from that. You know, obviously Jesus you know, uh, everything in the Bible has like no no end, no bottom. um, but there are sort of primary and then secondary lessons. The primary lesson here is probably not about property rights, but so much more about Jesus sort of uh, talking about the kingdom of heaven and talking about, again, that thing I talk about very often on my show, how the first shall be last and the last shall be first, and to be a leader is to be a servant all all of that, you know, echoed throughout this this passage. Um but but a secondary, and I think, you know, by secondary I don't mean like insignificant. still a very significant lesson in the passage. You know, I just always want to lead with what the gospel says and and add, you know, political, economic commentary in afterwards, just in a sort of hierarchical sense. But you know, this is still a strong, important lesson that that speaks that comes, you know, comes out in the text very clearly, is that this is the Austrian theory of value, right? Like the whole idea that like, it's not the labor theory of value. This, this passage refutes the labor theory of value like succinctly. Because what did, what did he say at the beginning? He says, I will give you what is, what is right. Well, if labor theory of value is true, then they should have only got paid for what they worked. But that's not what he paid them. He paid them what he wanted to pay them. Because what is right is property rights. What is right is you can pay people whatever they want, and, but also pay people what you agreed to. The people at the beginning agreed to one Daenerys. That's all they were owed. Now, you could have said, well, we could have paid them more, but that wasn't the point. The point was he, he wanted to get more work done. And so he said, you know what? I will just you know get these throughout the day. He kept bringing more and more people in to maximize the return you would have at the end of the day. And he would have said, you know what? And I'll, I'll pay, I'll incentivize these people with the Daenerys. You know, maybe if he had, he could have, could have paid them less, but that's not the point. Just because he could have paid them less doesn't mean it was wrong, you know, or he could have paid the, he could have decided to pay the initial workers more, but it wasn't wrong for him not to. So this, this, this passage just completely flies in the face of all this sort of, you know, socialist rhetoric about, you know, fairness and equality being the the leading values of 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 economic theory and especially Christian socialists, I, I would be curious to see what they say about this passage because to me this is a clear refutation. No, you do with your property what you choose to do, and it's not based upon you know you, you don't have a moral obligation to the myth of equality or egalitarianism or or or, or these notions of of fairness. That's not what leads. You know, if anything, charity is the opposite of equality and fairness. You sometimes give more to people who haven't earned it out of charity, out of grace, out of love, out of mercy. But the point is, beyond—I mean, first, of course, yeah, you know, merciful. The last will be first, etc. But but then after that, that which is yours, you are free to do with as you please, and you do not cannot demand from an employer, not demand from a con those who have contracted labor from you, you cannot demand from them that they pay you more based on an idea that of a quality because they paid, you know, can't go to you can't like if I mean like come up with an example here. If I sold a computer, let's say I had like I had a bunch of computers on my shelf, and one person came up and bought the computer from me for hundred dollars. Uh, that's a weird number. Uh, we'll say $1,000. Uh, and then, you know, they're hanging out afterwards. They're they're waiting to be picked up. Somebody else comes in, asks to buy the same computer. You know, I have another model, the same brand, all that. And I tell them, price is $1,000. And they said, oh, well, I have $900 cash. Will you take that? And I say, sure. Can the first person say, ah, you swindler, you... You, you, you know, you, you baron, you robber. Can you (laughs) like, you owe me a hundred dollars. Like, nope, you didn't haggle. You didn't, you didn't negotiate. I said a thousand dollars. You accepted that. We had a contract. We agreed, we paid, we exchanged property. What's done is done. What I, what, how I do business with somebody else, um, does not then, uh, have anything to say about what I owe you. What leads is property rights. What leads is voluntary Association and voluntary uh, um, contracts and agreements. What leads is that value. Also, another another thing to come here is that value doesn't come from labor. Value comes from whatever two or more people agree to in terms of the value of that exchange and that the value of goods and services is subjective. So, yeah, this is all Austrian economics 101. (laughs) All right, everyone, that's the end of the clip there. I hope that made some sense to you. I hope that you have a, you know, can see how from that passage and we'll definitely be doing more passages and and things in the future, but we can derive from the Bible a sense that, you know, we aren't owed this sort of like, you know, more modern day sense of like everything has to be fair or equal in terms of, you know, what we receive or equal in an economic sense, you know, we're equal in Christ, we're, you know, equal in a sense of we have the same rights, but those rights are to ourselves and to our property when it comes to at least, you know, what rights we have in the analysis of human interactions. There might be, you know, more to say in terms of rights that we have maybe in a more fundamental religious or Christian sense in terms of those vertical relationships as comprised to the horizontal ones. But when we're looking at the horizontal landscape of human action and interaction, nobody owns anyone else and nobody owes anyone anything, except that they do not commit aggression against the other. So this passage also, as I said, debunks the idea of the labor theory of value, The idea that economic value of a good or service would be determined by the total amount of labor that was required to produce it. And this passage just turns that idea on its face. Because, you know, I mean, think about if I were to dig a hole in, you know, an empty field somewhere. Well, no one owes me any money for doing that. In fact, if I'm just digging holes or doing work that nobody really wants me to do... Well, nobody owes me anything for doing that. Like, if I go to your backyard and decide to dig a hole and say, "Like, all right, I just did an hour of labor on your yard, give me money." It's like, well, no, I didn't agree to that. (laughs) So, I mean, we can all think about like people in workplaces and stuff who are there, but are they, you know, are they working or, you know, maybe someone's labor is they're doing work, but maybe they're doing something counterproductive that's actually against what the workplace or against what the people who are trying to do something is trying to do. And so, you know, labor is a factor in determining what value is. But what ultimately determines the value is that subjective judgment that has to exist between, you know, generally two people or more in that, like, your labor only has value maybe to yourself, and then it can have value to someone else only if they agree to the idea that they want you to do that labor for some end. And so we see that labor is a factor, but it is not the actual foundation of where value comes from. And that just because someone has done labor that we can't just, you know, measure the labor they've done and then that's the entire story of what they're owed. I hope you enjoyed that episode as always if you Uh, like what you're hearing, please subscribe to the show, leave a review, go to biblicalanarchypodcast.com or libertarianchristians.com and contribute to the Christians for Liberty Network and all that LCI is doing. And yeah, I hope that uh, you'll tune in next week and I look forward to talking to you
0: then. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, Please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.